0: I'd like to have you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I'll begin at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of this land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they may say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves. And teach it to the sons of Israel, put it on their lips, so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten, and are satisfied, and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods, and serve them, and spurn me, and break my covenant. Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Would you please pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for being with us, for being our God and our Lord, our Redeemer, for being a God who knows our weakness and has given us abounding grace so that our weakness doesn't overcome us, but your strength sustains us during these days of pilgrimage. We thank you for that, and we pray now that you will speak to us and teach us how to live in these tumultuous times for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Remember, this phrase, beware lest you forget, beware lest you forget, occurs over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Beware lest you forget. Now, if you don't think about anything else, we know what that means. It means we are a forgetful people. It's part of our nature. We are a forgetful people. We forget how God has rescued us. We forget what God has taught us. We forget how God wants us to live. We are a forgetful people. So it says remember, remember, don't forget. So I'd like to look at this text in Deuteronomy, but I'd like to look at it in the light of the crises we face in our nation today. Yeah, I think the COVID-19 crisis is continuing. We can't ignore that. Well, look, look how we are. We're all masked and sitting hundreds of feet apart, it seems. But of course, these last few weeks, we're wrestling with another crisis that has gripped our nation, the issues of justice, the issues of what happened to George Floyd and his family, racism and brutality. I'd like to spend some more time on these issues on Wednesday night, and you're all welcome to join us as we live stream that at 7 o'clock. But I'd like to look at our text and really look at two things and then a summary. First, remember how easily influenced you are, how the culture shapes the conversations you have the ideas that inhabit your mind and then secondly remember God's truth and I'd like to think about these two in terms of images so remember how easily influenced you are and the question to ask ourselves is am I a mirror or am I a light and then remember God's truth and the question I'd like to ask is am I a sponge soaking in what's around me, or am I a fountain of truth and grace? And then I'll, at the end, summarize that we remember God's grace and how he helps us to remember by sending reminders. He gives us reminders so that we remember. So let's begin. Remember how easily influenced you are. We're prone to forget God. We're prone to follow the currents of our culture. Chapter 31, verse 16. The Lord appeared in the tent and the pillar of a cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, in the midst of which they are going. We are vulnerable, and God is completely aware of the nature of His people, the Israelites as well as us. So it's talking here about other gods. What do you think? Is it just talking about bowing down before stone and wooden structures? Is it talking about the intangible gods of pleasure and power and money? I think it is talking about those gods, but it's talking about more than sort of what someone might do on a holy day. It's talking about worship. And we have to understand that we're all worshipers, and worship means what the passion of our hearts is, what shapes our lives, and It determines then what we're talking about today, where people are looking today. I mean, think about it. Where are people looking for authority today, for moral guidance today in the midst of our turmoil? Who do they consider to be important? Whose words carry weight today? All those reveal the things that we revere and honor in our hearts. So worship is really the heartbeat of a culture. And so Moses is here talking about the heartbeat of these pagan cultures. It's the festivals that all the families will get together and celebrate. It's the most important memories these people have. It's the values of the culture that will be determined. What they hate and what they love. What they're willing to die for. What they're willing to kill for. It's who they admire. What they call noble and right. So when it says that they're going to follow the ways of this culture, they're talking about all of that. So scripture says we become like the one we worship. So who we worship or what we worship really determines who we are, what our values are, what we consider right and wrong. It determines our very culture and says you shall not be like them. Everywhere as you read in Exodus and Deuteronomy, as you read in the New Testament, it says don't be like them. Come out from them. Be separate. So the first thing is, remember how easily influenced you are. We're prone to be mirrors, you see. Mirrors. We're prone to reflect the values of our culture, really without even thinking about it. It just happens. And we forget the truth of God's word. It's not consciously a part of what we're doing. So that's the image I have in mind as I'm thinking about this, that Jesus told us to be like lights in a dark world. That means how we live, how we speak, what our relationships are like, our priorities, what we talk about, what shapes our conversations. Be like lights in the world. But the danger is that instead We can become reflectors of the culture around us. You see, we can become mirrors instead of lights. So today, as we think about the issues that you can't escape, authority, government, the police, race, brutality, justice, I want to ask you, are you mirrors or are you light? Now, the light of the Bible is clear. It's bright, it's crystal clear from page one. When it comes to the issues we're talking about today, the Bible gives insight that perhaps is not found anywhere else in the world. Right in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 and on, it says that every single human being is made in the image of God. Every race is made in the image of God. We believe that and we know that. It's the foundation of our thinking. But don't take this for granted. Don't think that everybody around us in this country either believes this or knows why they believe this. Without the Bible, there's no foundation for believing this. And don't make the error of thinking every culture accepts this. That's not true at all. There are many cultures in which they believe that differences of class or color or status in society is determined right from the beginning by how these people were created. Not everybody was created equal. They're created unequal. And the Bible denounces this as a lie. And so, right from the beginning, all races are created equal. We're all in the image of God. And it's reflected as you read the laws of God in the Pentateuch. You know, if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see it's reflected there in the laws of God. For example, an issue that of course, in the West, has been a great struggle as intermarriage of the races. But it was not a problem in the Bible at all. Because in the Bible, it's been clear from page one that all the races are made in the image of God. So God did restrict marriage, by the way. There are some people that God's people are not to marry. It's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament, but the lines are drawn on spiritual grounds. Don't marry. God says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't marry those who don't love the Lord your God as the one true God. But people of different races married. And you see that as you read the Old Testament. Moses is a prime example of this, by the way. You might want to read Numbers chapter 12 as to what happened as a result of the woman he married. But he married someone who seems to have had darker skin because race was not an issue In fact, when his sister objected to it, God judged Miriam, Moses' sister, for objecting to that. So scripture tells us about all these marriages that became honored in the pages of scripture. Rahab, a Canaanite, married a Hebrew man. Ruth, a Moabite, married a Hebrew man, Boaz. And as you know, they became in the line of the Messiah. Their names are recorded in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as those who God honored, from whom the Messiah came. We're vulnerable. We just absorb what's in our culture. East, west, north, south, I don't think it matters. And so that's the first thing to remember. We're vulnerable. It's easy to be carried along with the culture. So don't be a mirror, be a light to the world. Here's a second point. Remember God's truth. If you don't remember God's truth, then you'll be like a dry sponge soaking up all the lies that are in the culture. Verse 18. So, yeah, they're in the midst of these people. Does it affect how they live, how they think? Here's what verse 18 says. I'll just read this one verse, though the same thought is elsewhere also. But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. So it's not as though absorbing the things of this culture leaves us unchanged. No, we begin to do evil, it says. Our behavior changes, our thinking changes. So we can begin to absorb the falsehoods of our culture instead of teaching God's truth. In other words, we can become sponges instead of fountains of truth and grace. So, simple question as an illustration of this. Why is racism wrong? Why is racism wrong? It seems like such a simple question. Everybody will admit that it's wrong. But why? What basis do you have for saying that? We have a biblical foundation. We think it's wrong because it's contrary to the truth that God taught us from page one, that all of us are created equally in the image of God. We bear that infinitely valuable image on us. Doesn't matter what color, what language, doesn't matter what age, we're all in the image of God. But when that truth is denied or when, you know, people are weak, they don't know why they believe it. There's no foundation for that truth. When that truth is denied or doubted, lies rush in. And I'd like to give you three examples very briefly. In the West, and this is an example you know because you've read American history, and history of Europe and England. In the West, we distorted scriptures to support the prevailing racist ideas and then began to actually cite scripture to support the institution of slavery. It's a strange reality, isn't it? Prevailing ideas and scriptures used to support those. Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery at the age of 20 in 1838, ended up becoming a famous abolitionist speaker. He endured, oh, much cruelty and hardship as a slave, both himself and seeing unspeakable cruelty committed against those he loved, those who were members of his own family. And all of this was, by the way, committed by those who went to church, who were Christians. In the African Methodist church, he heard, I think, what I would call the whole word of God. And at the age of 13 or 14, He came to know Christ as his Savior. He put his faith in Christ. He began to see that the Word of God is truth and that it's much larger than the truth he was being told as a slave. So he escaped at the age of 20 and he spent his life vehemently speaking against Christians who ignored their own scriptures, who ignored the truth. So, for example, just to quote one thing he said between the Christianity of this land, And the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. You see what I'm saying? Ideas are just absorbed from the culture like like a sponge without thinking about it. They don't judge the culture. They don't judge really their own hearts in the light of God's word. And then the way we live is no longer a light to others. That's what Genesis 31, 18 is talking about. It's talking about then how we treat other men and women. It's talking about who we eat and drink with, who we're friends with, who we give rights and privileges to and who we take them away from. It's talking about who we marry and who we think it unthinkable to marry. The culture can soak into a dry sponge unless we're filled with the truth of God. Here's a second example. In much more recent times, up until seventy years ago, though tendrils of this continue today, there was a science, and I can put that in air quotes, called eugenics. The best minds in the West, America, England, Europe, best minds in the West thought it was a very logical application of evolutionary theory. You know, think about it. If, If life is all about the existence of the fittest, then a couple implications follow. First, We have to keep our gene pool pure, don't we? And we want the human race to get better and better. So we don't want anybody who will infect the best of the genetics of the human race. We don't want them to infect the gene pool. And then a second one also follows. Since the various races were evolving in geographically isolated locations, they said, it makes all the sense in the world that they evolved in different ways, and therefore, some were more advanced, some were intellectually more superior, and some were not. This made so much sense, and really, in some ways, sadly, the logic still makes sense. And so, you might think, well, this is a French teaching, right? We think of this as some supremacist group, some weird group that we don't have to worry about. But really, when historians write about this, they use words like, this was the consensus of the age. We're talking about the last century. This was the consensus of the age. Those who were thought to have feeble genes, feeble meant mentally feeble, physically feeble, morally feeble even, were declared to be unfit to reproduce because we didn't want them contaminating the gene pool. And the consensus, if you read the names, it's amazing. It's the most eminent scientists and professors from all the Ivy League colleges, Harvard and Yale and Columbia, they're all in the list. And along with them is the politicians and celebrities and all the powerful people of the day, like people like Theodore Roosevelt, John D. Rockefeller, H.G. Wells, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Winston Churchill, and to me, surprisingly, Helen Keller, who was herself, you know, blind and mute and deaf. But she said this science made sense to her. She said it was like weeding a garden so that flowers could grow better. It was just a small step then for some of them to go a little bit further to that second category I mentioned, and then to apply it to race, and many of them did. It wasn't secret, they didn't meet in societies, they wrote openly about it. It was a matter of open discussion. And in particular, people of color were considered backward and less evolved. And so this was a contradiction of the truth that God has declared in his word. It was lies, but it's easy to absorb lies when the truth of God is denied. So let me give you one third example very briefly. It's a personal example. It begins actually well before Darwin, lest we think that all of this is a result of evolutionary theory. hundred or more years before Darwin, you read the writings, there was many people who believed that those who were darker skin colored were also lower in intelligence and lower than the white races. The brilliant philosopher Immanuel Kant writing on a completely different subject. I happened to be reading him because he was speculating on life on other planets. He, as you read his writings, seemed to believe that that climates that were warm and sunny produced darker races which were intellectually less capable. I encountered this idea personally hundreds of years later. I went to a very good school in a suburb of Minneapolis. It was a wealthy suburb excellent school, excellent teachers. I got an excellent education. I have nothing to complain about. One day I was in a social studies class and the teacher was a good man. He treated everybody well, including me. But you know, we're sponges. We soak in the truths that we're told in our school system and in the culture around us. And that's what he had been doing. So one day he said, of course, those who live in a warmer climate, he said, have food readily available to them. It just grows. You don't have to work at it. It just grows on trees, and so they can feed themselves and they can care for themselves very easily, whereas those in the northern climates, and he meant, well, Europe and England, he meant the white races, those in the northern climate, he said, have to be creative. They have to be inventive to just survive, and because of this kind of different environment, the races evolved differently and the white races ended up evolving to have greater intellectual capabilities. I felt everybody looking at me. You know, I was the only non-white in the classroom. I think in the o- only non-white in the whole school. I heard what he was saying. I felt the blood sort of rush to my face. He was saying, I was less evolved than my classmates, that I was intellectually inferior, and the evidence of that was the color of my skin. It soaks into our culture, that's what I'm saying. You don't even think about it. It's there. It's a part of who we are. When we forget God's truth, the lies of the culture soak in, we become sponges. By the way, do you see what the practical application of all of this is then? Let me give you a different illustration from the New Testament and you'll see what the application is. This truth of the Gospel is completely counter-cultural. Either we become a sponge, absorbing falsehoods, or we become a fountain of God's truth. When the Gospel was revealed in the New Testament, it shattered cultural expectations. It wasn't just equal treatment of all races under the law, but as I said at the opening of this service in Christ, we become one family, brothers and sisters redeemed by one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with one hope, one redemption, one faith, one spirit. But not everybody understands this. Not everybody who is exercised about what's happened in our country in the last few weeks even has a basis for believing this or understands where this idea came from because this is a gospel truth. This is a cross-centered truth. George Floyd's pastor was being interviewed and the interview were as he was closing the interview was remembering George Floyd's hard past and he wanted to close with a positive word and he said something that I think would be commonly referred to as something very positive He says you know George Floyd was an example of a man who redeemed himself and the pastor very gently and I commend him for this very gently corrected it he says George was not one who redeemed himself, but he said, we in Christianity believe in redemption because we have a redeemer, Christ, who redeems us. The center of it, you see, is the cross. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was counter-cultural, and it's easy to forget that truth. It's easy, so that's why God keeps saying, remember, remember. Peter, you remember, was given this vision. It's in Acts chapter 10. He was told that, you know, all races are equal. All are welcome to the table, Peter. And he saw this sheet inviting him to eat all the animals. It was a symbol that that barrier of diet was no longer there. And Peter said, oh, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat. You know, I, I only eat kosher. I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles because they're dirty. If I eat with them, I'll be defiled. And God rebuked him and said, how dare you? How dare you call unclean those who I have cleansed in Christ, those who I have brought to myself in Christ those who I now call sons and daughters. You'd think a vision like this would never be forgotten, wouldn't you? And yet, a few years later, Peter was in Antioch. And he was doing fine. He was eating and dining with the Gentiles there until a delegation came from Jerusalem, Jews. And immediately, he spurned the Gentiles, left their table, and started to eat only with the Jews. It's just hard. It's hard to deny what's been soaked into us in our culture. It's hard to even change our mind if you've heard these things all your life and for generations. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes that he went and he rebuked Peter. But it's interesting, the words he says. He says, Peter and his group were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. The way to combat these lies is with the truth. Lies from tradition and from our culture which soak into us or The truth of God shining out from us as a fountain. So, the practical application, especially when you think of Peter, is very clear, isn't it? It's a warning to be careful about the Miss America answer. You know, the Miss America answer? What do you wish for? And she says, I wish for world peace. And just such a nice thing to wish for, world peace. But of course, the question is, okay, Miss America, but are you willing to go home and make peace in your house? Are you willing to make peace with the friends who have mistreated you or who gossip against you or who have slandered you? World peace is easy. makes us feel high and noble. But putting it into practice is what's hard. And so I think these days it's, it's easy to say, I hate racism. I'm against racism. Who isn't? Hardly anybody I know. There might be a few fringy people. But hardly anybody, Peter, would have certainly said that. And to say I'm against racism makes us feel moral, high-minded, noble. In fact, I think it insulates us against accusations of being racist. No, 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 not me. I hate racism. But how do we live it out? Are we willing to be friends with those who look different and eat different and speak differently? I don't mean as a project. All right, I heard that sermon, so I'm going to go find somebody to be to eat a meal with. I don't mean as a project, but genuinely to be friends. Those who you meet with regularly, whose company you enjoy, or part of your circle, you invite to your homes, you're willing to marry them if that's where God is leading you, because race is no longer an issue, only that you're one in Christ. So we're to shine with God's truth one by one, you know, one friend at a time, one home at a time, one table at a time. Easy to forget. Easy to forget. So God says, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Remember. We can become mirrors instead of being lights. We can become sponges instead of fountains of truth. But God is gracious, so he sends us reminders. Sends us reminders of his grace and truth over and over And here's an example in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 31. Then it shall come to pass about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will again testify before them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I have sworn. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. So here's an illustration of a reminder. Songs are reminders. Isn't it funny we learn songs to learn the multiplication tables? You know, They remind us those truths. Here's songs that remind us of God's truth. You can read the song in the next chapter, by the way, Deuteronomy 32. You'll see it's not exactly a dance tune. It's not a happy little ditty. It's more like the worst finger-wagging lecture your dad ever gave you. Except at the end, where it closes with warm words of love from the Lord. But it's a reminder, you see. These are the kinds of reminders God gives to us. The Word of God is a reminder. I won't read this, but 31 verses 11 to 13 illustrates this, that people got together on this festival, the Festival of Booths, reminding them of when they were on their journey and God took care of them. And the whole Word of God was read. Everything was read for them. Once a year, the whole of the Word of God was read. When you read the Bible, it's quite probable, quite probable, that you focus on those passages that you're most comfortable with, that bring you most joy and peace. But here, the whole Word was read. See, it was God uncensored. Everything. I'll tell you something. After all these decades standing before you, I've learned something. I hope you don't mind my... Saying this, but that's why God has ordained for God's people to be in church every week, regularly. Because what I've seen is that Satan has a way of distracting people, keeping them away from church on the very Sunday when the topic is the most urgent medicine their souls need. Here they got the Word of God. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. And then the testimonies of God are a reminder. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7, it says, Talk to the elders. Talk to those who are ahead of you on the path. They'll remind you of who God is. They'll remind you that what's happening right now, even in our nation, is not the end of the world. This has happened before. And they'll give you some perspective on how to think about it. Remember God's truth. Stick with it. And then festivals are a reminder. The Jews had all kinds of festivals. Passover was a prominent example of that. Remember that you were in bondage. Remember that you were without hope. Remember that your little ones were being murdered right after they were born, right before your eyes. Remember that? Remember the bitterness of slavery? He says, so celebrate the Passover each year because it will remind you of God's deliverance. And as you celebrate, eat bitter herbs. That's part of the meal, bitter herbs. Why? Because it reminds you of the bitterness of bondage. The bitter herbs were maybe something like horseradish. They're bitter to the taste, and they bring tears to your eyes. So God was saying, as you eat this, you'll taste the bitterness. You'll remember it with your palate. And as you feel the tears rolling down your cheeks, you'll again remember the bitterness of slavery from which I rescued you. It's visceral. It's practical. It's physical. And so today we have a festival of sorts also. Festival sounds like the wrong word, but it's the communion meal. It's a reminder. Remember me in the breaking of the bread, Jesus said. Remember me. As often as you do this, it's spilled blood and broken body for every race. And we're tasting it, you see. We're tasting it. Just as there's one loaf, Scripture tells us, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Don't deny that truth. Don't live as though that is not true. And there's a redemption for all of us in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death. For every human race, on exactly the same basis, faith in him, regardless of color and race and tribe, the only thing that matters is that we're bought, redeemed, freed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture says it's a new race. It's a new humanity. That's what the theology of the New Testament says. Now, instead of being mirrors which reflect the culture around us, we are lights of God's truth in Christ. Instead of being sponges which are voraciously absorbing all the lies around us, now we're fountains of grace and God's truth. And for how long? How long do we celebrate this meal? How long do we keep praying for and waiting for this redemption of humanity to be completed? It says, do this until the Lord returns. Do this until Christ Jesus returns. So that's what we're going to do now. Will all brokenness be healed one day? Will all justice be restored? Will Christ rule again? Yes. Till then, we celebrate this meal with hope and with faith in Him. Let's pray. Examine us, Lord, according to Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit. We have a way, Lord, of feeling safe when we hear Your Word, especially those, Lord, who have heard this all their lives, like me, we've thought about it and we think we've understood it all. We pray, Lord, that your word would be fresh to us, that we would turn to you, Lord, and seek to understand who you are and what you want from us. As we approach at your table, Lord, we do it with this kind of humility. That we're vulnerable, we're weak, prone to believe lies. We do it, Lord, this humility, Lord, of too easily following the currents of our culture rather than standing up for you. Even, Lord, following the currents of our little political or social subgroup instead of standing up for you. Give us new minds and new hearts, we pray. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What kind of peace do you think people want today? Think they're waiting for perfect justice, maybe? Others are saying, just so there's no violence, that's all I want. My prayer is that you would be agents of God's peace, the shalom he offers in Christ Jesus where members of every race are embraced as brothers and sisters. Amen.